American Catholic History is brought to you by the StarQuest Production Network and is made possible by our many generous patrons. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. Hello and welcome to American Catholic History. If you like our podcast, be sure to rate us and give us a review wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Noelle Heaster Crow. And I'm Tom Crow. Today we're talking about a dramatic, miraculous healing that divided the church, inspired anti Catholic activity, and then largely disappeared from the public consciousness. Yes, this is a somewhat graphic story with some talk of disease and its ugly reality, but it's important to make clear the severity of the suffering and the greatness of the cure. There are a number of aspects to this story, but they start with this simple fact Anne Mattingly developed breast cancer. It all started in 1817 in Washington, D.C. with Anne Carberry Mattingly. She was a 34-year-old widow and the sister of the mayor of Washington, Captain Thomas Carberry. The Carberrys were a very old Maryland family. Anne had been a picture of health for her 34 years, but in 1817 she noticed pain developing in her left side and found the beginning of a hard mass in her left breast. She was diagnosed with breast cancer and it was an aggressive and painful ordeal. According to records, it did not take long for the tumor to grow to roughly the size of a pigeon egg, and the area around it became incredibly sensitive. Touching it, or even the pressure from clothing, produced intense pain. Within a year, her pain was so intense, she described it as what she imagined she would feel if her side were bored with an auger, pinched with forceps, or cut with sharp instruments. Doctors were called in, and some recommended surgery to remove the tumor, but for unknown reasons, that surgery was not pursued. The treatments that they did recommend and apply included applications of hemlock and mercury ointment in efforts to both control the pain and reduce the size of the tumor, but nothing worked. The symptoms spread, as did the cancer. Eventually, she was bedridden from the pain and weakness, living in a room at her brother's house at the corner of 17th and C Streets. Not that it matters to the story, but that address would put her about a block and a half from the White House. Right. But the house was torn down in the early 20th century to make way for the Daughters of the American Revolution Hall. Anyway, back to Anne Mattingly and her illness. Her symptoms began to include violent fits of coughing, which would produce vast quantities of blood, including blood clots. Being bedridden for so long caused her to develop ulcers on her back and legs. Reports were that it became unpleasant to even walk past the door of her room due to the smell of the blood and other bodily discharges. And this went on for years. It's almost hard to believe she lasted as long as she did in that state. But according to a meticulous accounting of the whole affair written by John England, Bishop of Charleston, yes, this went on for years. Bishop England quotes directly from doctors, friends, and others who would have reason to be skeptical of a miraculous healing. So when the miracle came, all of this can't be discounted as just some pious embellishment by someone who wants to believe. Exactly. And this brings us to late 1823 and the transatlantic request for a miracle. 1823. So, Anne Mattingly has been living in this horrible condition for six years by this point. Her main tumor had grown and she was practically paralyzed from pain. She was on the maximum dosage of laudanum, 400 grams, which includes straight opium and contains significant amounts of morphine and codeine. Yes. She went in and out of lucidity from all the drugs. By this point, six years of agony, the doctors were strictly doing palliative care, just trying to control the pain until death finally, mercifully, took her. But death didn't scare Anne Mattingly. 
According to Bishop England's report, through her trial, Anne exercised a Christian fortitude and practiced a habitual piety and resignation, truly edifying and consolatory to her relatives and friends. She saw death as a passage to finally be at peace with our Lord. Man, I have no doubt that I'd be ready for death after six years of agony. I just don't know if I'd be that at peace with the suffering. That is some serious trust in God's loving providence. And her piety and faith clearly made an impression on some Jesuits who decided that she deserved an extraordinary effort for healing. Right. Two Jesuits in particular. One was Stephen Dubuisson, the assistant pastor at St. Patrick's Parish in Washington, one of the oldest Catholic churches in the city. The other is an old friend of ours, Anthony Coleman. Yes, Father Coleman figured in our second episode because a decade earlier he had won a court case in New York City in defense of the seal of confession. Now, in 1823, he was the superior of the Jesuits at White Marsh in Prince George's County, Maryland. Yes, we said back in episode two that his name would come up again because this is one of the stories I knew we'd be telling. And there is a third which we may do that he figures into, so keep listening. Anyhow, so Father Anthony Coleman had become acquaintances with Anne Mattingly when he was rector of the seminary in Washington, so her many-year agony became known to him. These two Jesuits both knew Anne Mattingly, and they also knew about someone else, a miracle-working priest over in present-day Germany, Prince Alexander Leopold Hohenlohe Waldenburg Schillingsfurst. We'll call him Prince Alexander for brevity's sake. Prince Alexander had established a bit of a cult following in the early 1820s after a number of miraculous cures came about through his prayers. Right, and many priests, including Maryland Jesuits, wrote to him seeking favors for their parishioners. One of those was Father de Buisson. In 1823, Father Coleman asked Father de Buisson to write to Prince Alexander on behalf of Anne Mattingly, but Father de Buisson didn't do so until January 1824. By this point, the doctors had finally given up hope on Anne Mattingly and were just waiting for the end. Maybe Father de Buisson finally did it out of a sense of, hey, at least we should try. But these two Jesuits also knew a few other things about Prince Alexander. One, that he received loads of letters, and so it was tough to get a response back from him, especially on something so time-sensitive, since Anne could die at any time. Two, that Prince Alexander offered a special mass on the 10th of every month for all those outside of Europe who were requesting his intercession, but whom he could not reply to personally. And three, he had a specific process that he prescribed a novena to be made in honor of the holy name of Jesus, a particular blessing to be done, and he insisted that the intended recipient of the miracle go to confession and receive Holy Communion. Now, it isn't 100% clear whether they actually received a letter back from Prince Alexander in a timely manner or not. There are quotes from a letter sent to Anne Mattingly by Prince Alexander, but that letter could have arrived after the events of March 10, 1824. So it seems most likely that they decided to just coordinate their efforts along with what they knew about his 10th of the month mass practice. So that meant that in February, when Anne's condition worsened, I mean, Mm -hmm. it's hard to believe that it could worsen, all things considered, Fathers Dubuisson and Coleman decided that they should just arrange to pray the novena so that it ended on March 10th. So with Anne Mattingly's permission and the cooperation of her brother, Captain Thomas Carberry, and some friends, they set things up. Many already knew about Anne Mattingly's plight, but now word went out that they were literally praying for a miracle. More than 200 prayed the novena with them. 
When March 10th came, they wanted to make sure that Mass was offered in Washington at the exact same time that Prince Alexander was offering Mass in Bamberg, where he was located at the time. So Father Dubuisson began Mass at 2 a.m. at St. Patrick's, and to make sure they had the whole time frame covered, Father Coleman offered Mass at 3.30 in the chapel of Georgetown College. After Mass, Father Dubuisson hurried to Anne's bedside, arriving before Father Coleman. After saying the blessing, he gave her Holy Communion, which, in her weakened state, took her five minutes to swallow. But the effect was nearly immediate. Those in the room testified that within moments, all evidence of sickness was gone and her strength returned. She sat up and she said, Lord Jesus, what have I done to deserve so great a favor? The ulcers on her back were gone. The pain and the tumor were gone. The weakness and the violent hacking were gone. She was a healed woman, miraculously, and she would go on to live another 31 years. So that's the bare facts of the case. But the story naturally doesn't end there. As we said at the outset, this divided the church and contributed to a rise in anti-Catholic attitudes and activity. Right. So Fathers Coleman and Dubuisson were ecstatic and grateful and overjoyed by the stunning miracle. And they went about telling people about it and preaching about it and spreading the word. Father Coleman had the bell rung at Georgetown College and the community prayed a solemn te deum in thanksgiving for the miracle. Thousands came to see Anne Mattingly, the woman who should have died from cancer. Word spread like wildfire. It was a sensation in Washington, D.C. Right, but other Catholics, including Thomas Carberry, took a more cautious approach. Carberry, who was certainly ecstatic that his sister was cured miraculously, wrote a letter to the Archbishop of Baltimore, Ambrose Marischal, saying, We shall not make public this affair till we see or hear from you, which I trust for the honor and glory of the Catholic cause will be soon. Marischal appreciated Carberry's delicate approach and took his time replying. Marischal also did not seem to doubt that it was, indeed, a miraculous cure, but he had reasons to want to keep low-key about it. And some of his reasons were clearly prudent given the times, the nature of faith in the young United States, and the power of a sensational cure for good and not so good. For one, he didn't want people's passions to take over. If a person came to faith, that faith should be based in evidence and reason, not passion. And the sensation that followed the miracle really did get many people's passions up. Yes, miracles are attention-getting, but miracles of this nature are, first and foremost, a private matter. The church may later determine that a miracle has wider implications, but that is only after a long and deliberative process. For instance... A miracle that is directly attributed to a person who is up for sainthood is meticulously and exhaustively investigated to see if there is any other explanation. If there is not, and it can be demonstrated that the miracle was obtained through the intercession of the person in question, then the miracle is publicized by the church as something to be held as miraculous. If it is not, and it can be demonstrated that the miracle was obtained through the intercession of the person in question, then the miracle is publicized by the church as something to be held as miraculous and credited to the deceased person as evidence of their being in heaven. But not all miracles are given this scrutiny, nor need they be. In the case of Anne Mattingly, the miracle was obtained through the intercession of a man still very much alive and around whom there was controversy, so it was not a matter of investigating the miracle for a canonization. In fact, before the miraculous cure, when Archbishop Marischal was made aware that the two Jesuit fathers were petitioning Prince Alexander for the miraculous cure, he expressed his reservations to them. He wrote, I have certainly no objection to you performing the acts of devotion prescribed by Prince Hohenlohe. I myself on the 10th will join you in my prayers, but let no noise be made about it lest impious men from thence should take an occasion of ridiculing or blaspheming our holy religion. 
So the Catholic authorities were less inclined to rush to declare it a verified miracle. This concern was echoed by the pastor of St. Patrick's. He issued a statement saying that the matter was under investigation, but the church had no official position on whether or not a miracle had taken place just yet. That caution was tough to maintain, however, as Fathers Coleman and de Buisson, who had witnessed the healing, were unceasing in their exuberance. They even had announced that they were redoubling their efforts to secure miracles for three other cases they had written to Prince Alexander about. Archbishop Marischal's concern was that should these later attempts at miracles gain an audience, but not actually result in miracles, that could cast doubt in the public mind about whether the Mattingly miracle truly was a miracle. Right, because God grants miraculous healings for his reasons, according to his providence, not just because the people involved said or did the right thing, like some sort of magic trick. Exactly. And Archbishop Marischal was careful in his approach to investigating the miracle. He asked for testimony from all involved and asked specifically if testimony could be obtained from some witnesses who would have reasons to be skeptical, including Protestants. He took his time and eventually did publish a pamphlet of his findings, but while he never denied the miraculous nature of the healing, he clearly was not satisfied with the evidence in an official capacity, so in the pamphlet he avoided calling the event a miracle, preferring instead to let people judge the facts as available for themselves. His discretion may have been prudent in some ways, but it didn't prevent anti-Catholics from using it as a reason to bash Catholics even more. No, one newspaper's headline read simply, Humbug. The Washington Theological Repertory said of Catholics, Men of reading, reflection, and sense will laugh at their pretensions and feel indignant that in this age and country an attempt should be made to impose upon the credulity of the people by a branch of that body which forged and riveted and are now trying to rivet again the chains of ignorance and superstition under which the people of Europe have so long been groaning. That quote was just the foretaste of what was to come. The affair of the Mattingly miracle actually contributed to the rise of anti-Catholicism in the U.S. and the rise of the Know-Nothing Party. What Marischal feared would happen if the miracle was publicized too widely did in fact eventually come to pass despite his efforts to rein in the exuberance. Yes, many Protestants were suspicious of Catholics, thinking that since Catholics were beholden to the Pope, they must not be able to be good Americans. A miracle that came through the intercession of a German prince would look terrible in that light. Sure, that would be Catholics in the U.S. relying on a foreign spiritual leader who also happened to be a member of a foreign royal family exactly what good Protestant Americans feared. Never mind that there was no thought of a foreign prince priest coming over as a ruler or even issuing orders that Catholics in, in this country would obey. Just the suggestion was enough to get their suspicions whipped up. And their suspicions did get whipped up. In the decades that followed, anti-Catholicism grew into a political position, eventually leading to the establishment of the American Party, known better as the Know-Nothings. We already talked about Father John Baptist, S.J., who was tarred and feathered by know-nothings in Maine in 1854. Listen to episode 51 for that story. But organized anti-Catholic mobs also would burn down the Ursuline Convent outside of Boston in 1834, torch churches in Philadelphia and elsewhere, start riots in Louisville to prevent the Catholics from voting, and cause lots of other mayhem around the country before the Civil War. It probably isn't fair to say that Mrs. Mattingly's miracle was the main cause of what happened, but sensational events like it certainly contributed. But through all of that, Mrs. Ann Mattingly lived in Washington peacefully for 31 more years 
dying at 70 years old in 1855, forever grateful to God for the miraculous deliverance from seven years of horrible pain and disease. You've been listening to American Catholic History on the StarQuest Production Network. If you've been enjoying our podcast, please help us out by giving us a five-star rating and a good review. And please support the work of SQPN. Your support at sqpn.com give helps make sure American Catholic history and all the StarQuest podcasts remain available. To learn more about Mrs. Mattingly's miracle, to find previous episodes, and to send feedback, please visit sqpn.com history. You can also find our American Catholic History bookstore there with a book about Mrs. Mattingly's miracle. You can email us at history at sqpn.com or find us on social media at facebook.com slash American Catholic History or follow StarQuest on Twitter at sqpn. I'm Noelle Heaster Crow. And I'm Tom Crow. Thank you once again for joining us on American Catholic History on StarQuest.